I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Today we will be in Zechariah 9. 9, verse 9 through 13. I've recently taken an interest, uh, a little, little interest in reading about Stephen Hawking. Uh, Stephen Hawking, not only known for his brilliance, uh, but also for uh, resilience. You know, he, he had ALS for the majority, majority of his life. And even though he was severely impaired in a disease that kills so many so quickly, I mean, he, he lived with it for a long, long, long time and, and still continued to produce all kinds of scientific work. Uh, he's really, he's a smart guy, you know, the Albert Einstein of our lifetime. But as many of you know about Stephen Hawking, he didn't believe in God. He was an atheist. Uh, but just because someone is lost, right, just because someone doesn't believe in God doesn't mean they can't have in- insight into truth or even, even profound insight. And one thing that Stephen Hawking is quoted as saying really stuck out to me. Uh, Stephen Hawking believed that, that modern computer viruses are, should be considered a new form of life. Make that what you will. That's not really what stuck out to me. It's what he said about computer viruses. He said this, maybe it says something about human nature that the only form of life we have created so far is purely destructive. Talk about creating life in our own image. I think he was on to something about human nature. But it is ironic that what we humans are good at is creating destruction. We're always developing new kinds of weapons and new kinds of bombs. And and really, every significant advance we have in technology comes because we have significant innovations in the military. Right? So that's why the highest quality items are military grade. You know, they're the the best and the the most technological advancements come through fields of, of military. But for all of our invention of destruction, humans are after something. Humans don't want destruction for destruction's sake. We want it for joy. For happiness. C.S. Lewis argued that evil doesn't exist on its own. It's simply a perversion of what's good. So, uh, the, the good thing is joy, but even someone who murders does so to get a perverted form of joy. Blaise Pascal, who I, I quoted last month, he's a brilliant scientist as well, but before the days of Stephen Hawking, he famously said that all men seek happiness. This is without exception. This is the motive of every man, even of those who hang themselves. What we want is joy. But what we can't seem to achieve is joy that lasts. Joy that's formidable. Joy that satisfies. And the good news is that that is exactly what God's gift to us is in Christ. Everlasting, never fading, resilient, satisfying joy. The advent of Christ is the advent of joy. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah 9. 
that we might find renewed joy in Christ. Starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. If you're a, dem- a diplomat, I almost said Democrat, if you're a diplomat, the last thing you want is armed conflict. That's why war, right, is often a last resort. But, but even uh, the goal of war, right, often, not always, the goal of war is peace. So even like someone who's trying to conquer the world is trying to bring about some ver- version of their own of peace. But you know, if you think about human conflict, even the most righteous kind that tries to bring about peace, it rarely achieves a, a total kind of peace, doesn't it? Like, even even when we uh, toppled Saddam Hussein in Iraq, right? We achieved like some level of peace, but for the people of of Iraq, like just the people who wanted to live their lives and and be farmers and stuff, they they really didn't have that much peace. Human conflict can't ever truly bring about peace. Christ is the only one whose force and whose conflict will ever bring about peace, and so that means. First of all, our joy is through our King of Peace. Look at the controlling phrase of this whole passage in verse 9. This controlling phrase, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is is the subject line, right? And so we read the rest of the passage through this filter. And the filter is joy. Rejoice. And that's what's so ironic about Scripture. Because the command to rejoice often comes in the moments when joy seems most impossible. Zechariah is a prophet. He's prophesying during the days uh, after the exile. So the Israelites have returned to Jerusalem. But not only have you just received, like, sorry, not only have you suffered this devastating blow in exile, right? This, this traumatic event as a, a people. You, you return home, you're vulnerable to your enemies, and, and life just isn't how it was. The golden days are gone. Like the, 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 the good old days, they're gone. But still, God comes to His people and He tells them, Rejoice. Why? Why should they rejoice? Look at verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's why they should rejoice. The golden days aren't behind them after all. The golden days are still ahead because the king is still yet 
to come. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. The king who, who is coming holds rescue and he holds righteousness. These ideas that he brings human flourishing to its fullest extent. Yes, it is true that Christ is the only one who can bring about true peace from conflict. But the main conflict is between this king and his people. The conflict is between us and God. The king's coming isn't good news if we have to answer for our crimes against him. Right? The presence of of a policeman can be a comforting thing. But if you're speeding, his presence causes fear. The king's presence, his coming should be a comfort, but instead his presence is a fearful thing for us. But it is good news if this king is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This king brings about peace through humility. The humility, the kind of humility that would compel the eternal Son of God to come and suffer and die on a cross. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Any ounce of peace that we enjoy is first achieved by the Son of God who for eternity had no form but became human and absorbed in Himself every ounce of the wrath of God. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting Christ today, you bear not one ounce of the anger or wrath of God. Zero. You are at peace with God because God has achieved that peace for you. That's the bottom of all peace. Christ brings about our ultimate peace through the conflict of the cross. But, but, He will also bring about universal peace through conquest. Look at verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. Those are battle terms. Those are fighting terms. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Church, we have peace with God. Right now, we have peace with God and we are looking forward to the day when that peace will be a universal and cosmic reality mentioned this before but I I enjoy guns I like guns they're fun when you're it's a privilege right to own them responsibly but I had someone ask me recently you know what if the government takes your guns away my response was that as much as I enjoy guns right now I can't wait for the day when we don't need them anymore they're an instrument of a fallen Creation, and I can't wait for the days of Isaiah 2. He shall judge between the nations 
and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The kind of joy that can't be taken away by the actions of governments or the rejection of family or the spurning of people, it resides in the one who is stronger than they are. Humans try to achieve joy through destruction. Christ will one day accomplish peace through our means of destruction. We have joy right now. Joy that might be mingled with tears. Joy that might be mingled with confusion. But a joy through our King of Peace who has accomplished peace for us and will deliver peace to us. The golden days, church, are still ahead. The best is yet to come. We may, in the 200 years since America was born, we might have experienced the very best that this world can offer. And it's really turned out to be kind of disappointing. The best is yet. There's one thing that I think we can all agree on about 2020 is like consistently it gives us reasons to not think things will get better. Right. So from a human perspective, obviously, it just it just seems like things get worse and worse and worse. Right. So one thing, you know, early in 2020, right, Kobe Bryant died. You're like, wow, 2020 is off to an awful start. Well, guess what? It wasn't over yet. It just gives us more and more and more reasons to think, well, yeah, it's not going to get any better. But that's the thing about biblical hope. We can have every humanly reason to not have hope. Right? We, we can have every reason to have no hope. We're hopeless. Facts can stare us in the face and say, you have no reason to hope. But as long as Christ is ruling and reigning, hope is always there. So that means, secondly, we have joy through our Savior of hope. You have joy through our Savior of hope. Look at verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Let's stop and think about that for a moment. What, what, is it, what does it mean to be in, in a pit? At times uh, that in my life when I felt most hopeless, when I have felt darkest, uh, it was a, the most helpful practice for me was to just live in the Psalms, read them every day. And as you read the Psalms over and over and over again, you'll start to realize how often the writers will mention pits, right? Not armpits, but like being in a pit. So Psalm 28, I become like those who go down to the pit. Psalm 30, you restored me from among those who go down to the pit. Psalm 40, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. Psalm 69, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. This phrase occurs over and over and over again in the Psalms. 
in all of these places, the pit is the end of hope. It's, it's the place of no return. It's, it's synonymous with words like death and Sheol, which, which are the worst and bleakest realities in Jewish thought. It's, it's, it's like in the Harry Potter books, the Dementor's Kiss, right? So the Dementor's Kiss is the worst of punishments reserved for the worst of criminals. And what happens is this creature called the Dementor sucks your soul out of your body. And so you end up becoming like a vegetable, existing with no feelings or purpose, never to truly ever live again. So to be in the pit is to exist without hope. To be in the pit is to just become a vegetable as you await your doom. It's, as, it's a hopeless place in every sense of the word. And here comes God who says to this person in the pit, I will set you free. To the most hopeless person in the most hopeless situation, God comes and He declares rescue. He is the God in Psalm 103 who redeems your life from the pit. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, the scariest part of all that book is early on when Pilgrim meets a man locked in a cage. And this man can't get out. He has sinned too much and too greatly to be saved. He is the epitome of the hopeless man. He has no hope. He, he has committed the last sin and he can't be saved. And as much as John Bunyan got right, the answer for that hopeless man is Psalm 107. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. Prisoners put there by God because they sinned against God. They, they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. You're locked away. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. No rescue, no hope of salvation. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death, death and burst their bonds apart for He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Or here in Zechariah 9 verse 12, return to your stronghold. Return to your home. Return to your security. O oh, prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will return to you devil. God, you don't have any reason to hope. And God still says to you, hope. And in verse 13, For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Church, the world gives us no reason to hope. No reason that governments will last. No hope that tensions will be resolved. And the temptation is to try and make things happen in our own power. 
right, Greece, right, he's talking about the sons of Greece, Greece, at this time, the enemy of Israel. And what's the temptation when your enemy puts you down? What's the temptation when your enemy insults you? Or when your enemy maligns you or attacks you? It's to get them back. It's to put them in their place. To give them what they deserve. Our vindication lies with God. And that means we are free to lose. Do you see the irony here? The prisoner in this pit has lost everything. But now these prisoners are set free to lose everything because vindication and a double portion are waiting for them. We can lose everything, church. Possessions and families, rights, status and power. We can lose everything with joy because of the indestructible hope that is ours in Christ. No, things will not all work out neatly right now. Yes, we might be severely disadvantaged, but we have an abiding hope in our Savior who has set us free from the pit and has given us a lasting possession. And that hope gives us joy. It gives us joy. Joy to be like the people in the book of Hebrews. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's true freedom. That's true joy. We have indestructible joy because of an indestructible Savior of The advent of Christ is the advent of peace. The advent of Christ is the advent of hope. Because of these, the advent of Christ is the advent of joy. True, lasting, indestructible, satisfying joy. We're all looking for joy in this room. All of us. The reason you're here today is so you hope you can get joy. For some of you, joy might seem far away. Maybe Christmas brings back painful memories. Maybe this Christmas is one of of suffering and darkness. For some of you, you've been looking for joy in all the wrong places. Even in sin. But our joy is found in Christ. And it's a joy that's available to you freely. Without cost. In the pit of destruction. A joy that's available to you by faith. As we end this year and we look forward to the next. I don't know 
how 2021 is going to be. And honestly, we're talking about hope. I don't have much hope that it's going to be any good. Actually, I have a lot of hope that it's going to be poor. Our joy is indestructible. Houses can be plundered. Rights can be taken. Officials can be elected. Family can curse us. Hope is indestructible. Joy is indestructible. This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about how God is a God of singing. At the end of 2020, God wants His people to sing. And it is only found in repentance and faith in Christ. Turn today if you have not. Turn today to the living Savior of sinners. Christ lives to save sinners. That's what He delights to do. Turn to Him today. Church, let us find renewed faith and renewed hope in the joy, the everlasting possession that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. People who are in prison because of their own sins against you, you still come to them and you give them hope. People who have no reason to hope, people who have committed the last sin, the, the, who've broken the last straw, who have fallen off the end of their rope, you still come and you say hope. You say free pardon. You say joy and peace. You say everlasting possession. You say an eternal home. You say high priest who intercedes for you. You say presence by my spirit. You say singing to the God of the universe. This is ours, all because of you. Lord, Christmas is about you and your supreme glory as the king of the universe. The king who has come, the king who we look and pray is yet to come. Keep us faithful to you, Lord. Renew our weary faith. Renew our sinking hope. And it's all in your name that we pray. Amen.